mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting In Work, episode 59 of the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective. I'm your host, John O'Peck, and this week, what a show we have for you. But first, the review of the week goes to the indie boy, straight out of the UK, who says, amazing podcast about creative people. Nice headline. Each week, Jono interviews a new person about what they do and how they got there. He is a great interviewer, having worked as a professional journalist for many years, and the people he talks to are fascinating. I can't recommend this podcast highly enough. Hopefully one day I will have done something cool enough to warrant being on the show. We'll see what we can do about that. But this week's fascinating guest is Nick Scarpino, the producer slash seducer from Kind of Funny. Nick is a very interesting figure to me. He's hilarious. He's a bit of a clown, and I'm sure that he'll know I say that in the best possible way because he loves to make people laugh, and he'll do and say almost anything to make it happen. He actually started his career, as we'll talk about, shooting weddings and later got a job as a video producer at IGN Entertainment. As part of a very small team doing video production, he worked his way up to become the manager of production and eventually the head of production. And he was in that position for a couple of years, overseeing all the content through IGN, including live streams, event coverage, working closely with the editorial team on all of their video games and entertainment content before leaving as one of the four co-founders of Kind of Funny. So Nick got thrown in with uh, Greg Miller, Colin Moriarty, Tim Geddes uh, as doing the Game Over Gregory show. And from there, they built enough of a following that they could leave and start their own company. And that's what he's doing now. He hosts the Kind of Funny Morning Show every weekday on their Twitch channel. And he's recently gone into stand-up comedy, which is something we're going to talk about a lot because it's a huge departure from what he's been used to, you know, working behind the camera for the majority of his career. That's been his thing. He's the producer. He's the you know director. But then with Kind of Funny, he got on camera. And that slowly led him to the point where he could perform on stage doing stand-up comedy. And that's really, I guess, the most ambitious thing he's working on at the moment. So if this is your first episode, I have recently interviewed Colin Moriarty. In the past, I've had Tim and Greg on the show, as well as Andy. And I'm sure there's been a lot of other guests of mine that you would enjoy if you want to go back and check those interviews out. But for now, here's Nick Scarpino. Enjoy the show. Thank you for joining me, Nick. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Now, I don't know if you know this, but I feel like I'm rounding out my collection of the set, you know, like the collecting all the Happy Meal toys, because you're my uh, fourth original co-founder to join. I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to take a positive spin on this and say that you are saving the best for last (laughs) on this. I'm not in any way, shape or form offended that you didn't pick me first. Well, Uh, I don't, I don't in any way, shape or form feel like uh, maybe you are uh just drudging up the, the bottom of the barrel <laughs> right now for your podcast no that i mean i haven't got to kevin yet but hey we'll see what happens no you're right Ke- kevin's definitely the bottom <laughs> of the barrel but it's like a barrel full of pickles so there's some fun yeah. shit happening down there i mean am i allowed to say shit on your podcast you can say whatever words are necessary great if shit. if you were at kind of not kind of funny life of course you were there. if you were at rtx sydney you may have been my first guest but unfortunately you didn't make it across and maybe next year maybe next year I did not. Apparently, they, they don't want me for international trips because uh, I'm too hot to handle. Right. Either that or they just don't think it's worth it for them to pay the hefty <laughs> fee to get me over yeah. halfway across the world. I'm sure the, the customs officers would um, have a fun time with you, Nick. 
God, I would love that. I love fucking with customs officers. I always like thread the needle on whether or not it's appropriate, the things I say to them. But then I get like super nervous and I start acting like prim and proper. And then it's clearly obvious (laughs) that I'm trying to smuggle something into their country, even though I'm not. Mm. I can't break rules. I'm sure you don't try that with your own customs officers. They're not to be trifled with. Well, have you, how many times have you been to the States? Twice. They always ask me the strangest questions, but yeah, go ahead. Dude, our customs officers here are no joke. Like, I've been all over the world. I've been to a lot of different countries. And most customs officers are stern. Mm -hmm. But um, ours are kind of, they're they're borderline cruel. They're borderline, yeah. yeah, It's almost inappropriate. I mean, try explaining to them that you're there for Kind of Funny Life 3. And look at the looks that you'll get. You you came all this way Mm -hmm. for a YouTube live show and to go to a couple movies. Yep, pretty much. They're like this guy's clearly a, this guy's clearly a drug <laughs> yeah. mule. You're you're clearly bringing in copious amounts of uh, cocaine. Yeah. Well, I did have a suitcase full of books, uh, one of which you signed for me, and oh, right uh, we might get into that later. So, Nick, let's get on to you and talk a bit about your career trajectory. We all know what you're doing now. Let's talk about, I guess, the steps that led from one to the other. So, you you went to film school, right? Yes, I went to, well, I went originally to UC Irvine for uh, computer science. So I went there with the intention of being a a computer science major. Uh, And then I took my first computer science course, which was called ICS 21. And I was uh, hit with the very shocking reality that I did not have either the passion nor the intellect to actually be a computer science major. Uh, I, I initially thought, hey, it'd be really cool to actually go and, and help make video games and things like that. And uh, I had to do my first lab, which was making Pac-Man. Uh, and it was very much a sink or swim moment. And I drowned. I was like, I don't want to do this. This is not uh, This is not where I'm at. This is not who I am. And so I was stuck with a reality of thinking like, wow, I had this path carved out for my life. And now I don't know what to do. And I happened to, uh, uh, you know, during one of my long walks of introspective thinking, I looked up and saw that we had a film department at UC Irvine and thought, well, I might as well go check that in because I've been had a lifelong love affair, lifelong being 19 years of my life at that point, <laughs> but lifelong love affair with watching movies. And I thought, oh, that might be something interesting to to do while I figure out my quote unquote real job. And I had a con- I walked in and I was able to actually just walk right into the head of the department's office. Um, and speak with her and she asked me a pretty simple question she was like well what do you want like do you love film and I'm like yeah she's like well do you want to be a film major and I'm like yeah I kind of do and it was weird that it was weird that no one in my life up until that point had told me that it was okay to want to follow that dream and so I had picked what I thought was the actually what I knew was the smart choice, which was be a computer science major, go to one of the top yeah. 10 schools in the, in, in, uh, the country for computer science, graduate, get a job, make money, uh, and that was it. But I didn't realize at the time that was making me horribly depressed. And I, was, I had zero motiv- uh, motivation whatsoever to actually do that goal. And so once I actually achieved that or got close to achieving that, of course, I, w- I wasn't happy. Because, you know, when you when you actively pursue something that you're not passionate about or you actively pursue something because maybe that's what you're it's expected of you or maybe that's yeah. what your parents kind of want you to do. Sometimes that doesn't lead to ultimate happiness or, uh, you know, ultimate motivation. And so that's one thing I've learned about myself is I have to follow. I can't be truly motivated towards something I don't care about. It just doesn't work that way. I have to I have to gravitate toward the things that um, 
that I am truly passionate about. And so, yeah, so I, I picked up, long story short, uh, I became a film studies major. Um, and if you're asking, Nick, what's the difference between film and film studies? Well, I'll tell you, a uh, huge difference. We were not, it was not a production oriented, um, it was not a production oriented major. It was a film studies major, so critical theory analysis. There was a lot of writing. There was an emphasis on screenwriting and analyzing screenplays. And so I uh, I really took to that and thought for a long time I wanted to be a screenwriter. So I studied screenwriting, wrote a bunch of screenplays that were terrible, including one called Talking Cigarettes, which is my first screenplay ever where a guy gets hit on the head and his cigarettes start talking to him. Uh, I was also a uh, probably half a pack a day smoker at that point. So you can see where that motivation came from, but they say, yeah. right, what you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I did that for a long time. And then when I graduated, uh, I was shocked that nobody wanted my screenplays. I was shocked that I couldn't easily get a job as a Hollywood screenwriter and make millions of dollars. Uh, and so I took the next best route, which was, um, to shoot wedding videos. That's what I started doing. Me and my buddy that lived across the hall from me um, in in my apartment in Orange County, um, he was he was a film major from Chapman, and he he was like, hey, why don't we start shooting what like stuff together? I'll buy a camera, you buy a computer. Um, actually, I think it was opposite. I think I bought the camera and he bought the computer. And he was like, we'll go out and shoot stuff together. I'll show you how to work this camera. We'll figure out how to edit stuff, and we'll go market ourselves um, as sort of a wedding company. And lo and behold, we, we tried, we shot a couple weddings, we got hooked up with a couple photographers, and then it just wasn't really sustaining him. And he wanted to get married um, to one of our other friends that kind of lived near us. And so he kind of bailed on that, but I had the camera. And so my, one of my other friends was shooting for a different wedding videography and corporate company and said, hey, why don't you come over here? You can meet these people. And if they like you, they'll give you a couple weddings. And we had a very informal interview during which the person who was interviewing me was smoking a cigarette indoors. Um, and this was in probably 2002. This is after I'd graduated, so 2003, 2002-ish area. Uh, and she, I was like, wow, this is really inappropriate. And she was like, you got a camera? And I was like, yes. She's like, you shot wedding videos before? And I was like, a couple. She goes, great, you're hired, and put me on some videos. She just put me on some weddings at that point, and I failed miserably. I had no idea what I was doing. I just It was one of those fake it till you make it moments. Um, but through that, I learned how you, to shoot. You didn't ruin any weddings, though, did you? I ruined a couple weddings, I'll be honest with you. Um, there was a couple – because you don't know. You don't know what you don't know, and that's always a very yeah. dangerous area to be in, but it's kind of where you have to start. You know, It's kind of what you have yeah. to – you kind of have to just jump into the deep end. Um, and so I shot a bunch of weddings and some better than others. Um, but then there was a moment where this was back when we were shooting an SD on uh, mini DV tape. Um, so I was shooting with a Canon XL1. Shot a bunch of wedding videos. Uh, taught myself uh, how to edit in Final Cut. Um, taught myself how to do... I started really getting uh, into After Effects because I started loving motion graphics. So I, start, I started teaching myself After Effects. And this is really on the cusp. This is pre-YouTube. So you had to go out and find tutorials on like creativecow.net and like um, Video Copilot and things like that. So you would just be like, how do I make a line draw itself? And that would be two days worth of research. Now you can go on YouTube and put <laughs> Stroke Tool After Effects yeah. and you can have 50 different people tell you how to do it. But back then, I just I really loved that concept. So, yeah, I did that for a few years. Um, at one point, I didn't realize that the XL1 that I was shooting on 
uh, the the had eaten a DV tape. Oh right, uh, which destroyed the drums, and so I didn't realize that. So I kept shooting on that camera for about three more weddings, and just totally borked all those weddings. Okay. Um, so that was my that was a horrible moment for me. That was a gut check moment where I was like, "Do I really want to run my own business like this?" I clearly do not have the skills to market myself. I was not really motivated toward going out there and getting my own weddings. I just was like, "Okay, these people are giving me weddings," and then I started editing the weddings for myself. So that's how I really learned how to use the tool set for Final Draft. And then one day, my buddy uh, who I lived with my my friend Ryan got a job at a place called GameSpot, um, and I don't know if you remember GameSpot, yeah. not GameSpot, GameSpy. Uh, uh, right, they, sure. they did, yeah, they did backend uh, server-to-server architecture for gaming, so they would do all the backend like PC gaming uh, servers. I don't know what they do now. I don't know if they're even around anymore. I don't really game that much, but uh, he noticed that there was a job opening for a video producer at a at GameSpy, which at the time he was in Costa Mesa and GameSpy had just gotten bought by IGN or at least a couple years prior it was bought by IGN. So I was like, oh, that would be really cool to go in and do what I'm doing for wedding videos. Like I could keep shooting weddings on the weekends, but then I could get a full time job shooting professionally for this tech company and they do video games. And that just sounds cool. The job description was like travel go see games shoot interviews with developers and i was like this is sounds fucking awesome like and it's right in my backyard because at the time i was living in irvine and costa mesa was that's where GameSpy's headquarters were i was like dude that's like a 10 minute drive and i could still shoot on at nights and still drive to la and do all, all the cool stuff that i you know trying to get off the ground there and so he recommended me he literally walked like um he had a trip up to SF, which is where the headquarters were. I didn't know this at the time, but he literally walked my resume over to Fran's desk and put it on there and was like, you really got to take a look at this guy. And then they called me. They interviewed me. I went over to L.A., the Culver City offices for IGN, and I had an interview with Fran. He, and I was like, I'm super excited about this. I'm, you know, I'm right in the backyard. And he was like, I'm like, I'm even willing to work out of the L.A. office if I need to. I'm totally fine, you know, finding an apartment that's close by or whatever. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. I think there's a misunderstanding. This is not a role for GameSpy. That's just an open rec that we have. You'll technically be the GameSpy producer, but you'll be working for IGN. And I was like, great. And in the back of my mind, I was like, what's IGN? Because <laughs> I had never once been on that website. At this point, I wasn't gaming. I was 100% in to learning new tech. Like I would spend every – if I wasn't watching like The Shield on FX, I was learning how to use After Effects. I was shooting whatever I could shoot. I was editing. I was shooting show choirs, dodgeball games, whatever the hell anyone – wanted needed a camera person for i was out as many days out of the week as i could and i was editing all the stuff too and so i didn't really have i let my console gaming fall by the wayside and i couldn't afford a pc so you know i'd play halo every once in a while with my buddy on his xbox but that would be pretty much it so i had no idea what ign was but i said of course i know ign i love ign i'm, a, I'm an avid watcher and or reader of that site <laughs> and so he said yeah the job's up in san francisco you'd have to leave your entire life behind which includes my entire family all my families in southern california and i had a girlfriend at the time too and i said i'm uh, i you know i was like i'm absolutely willing to do that if if you know that's what you guys need me to do and he was like great and then six months went by and i was like well i guess i didn't get that job <laughs> and i got a call while i was hanging out at the brea uh mall and um I get a call from this uh, 415 number and it's Fran and he's like, Hey, uh, it's Fran. We talked, you interviewed a long time ago. Uh, we're getting close to making a decision on this. Uh, we'd like you to go back in and talk with pair, uh, Schneider, who was our, uh, vice president. I think he was the GM or vice president of content at that point. Uh, he's a really cool guy. If you want to drive back to LA. So I drove back and talked to pair and pair is an awesome guy. And I think we spent all of five minutes talking and we didn't really talk about the role that much. Cause pair was like, I don't really 
Perez basically just like, is this guy a cool guy? Is he going to be a cultural fit for our team? Yeah. Is he going to be okay? And like, does he seem like he's a go getter? And he signed off on me. And uh, Fran was like, look, we want to offer you the job. Here's how much money we'll offer you. And at the time, it was way more than I was making shooting wedding videos. And it had uh, something called a benefits package <laughs> and uh, a 401k, which I had to also Google. And he was like, and I was like, I'll take it. And he was like, great, we need you up here in a week. So in seven days, I had to basically ditch my entire life and move up to San Francisco or someplace on the outskirts of San Francisco that I could afford. And I knew absolutely no one. There was not one single person. So so just to backtrack a little, what do you think it was that set you apart? Because getting a job at IGN, at least now, it's super competitive. And I'm sure it was to a similar extent back then. You still had something that they could see. Aside from maybe just having a good personality for it, but were these wedding videos that great? <laughs> no. Was well, it? what had set me apart was two things. One, I had a, I had a cheerleader. I had my friend who was constantly bugging Fran to keep looking at my resume, right. and came. And actually, I actually figured out that the reason he was doing that was not necessarily to do me a solid, although he did a huge solid for me but there was also a referral fee and he was like look if i get you hired he even told me he was like look i really want you to get hired i'd love for you to work in my company but i'll also get like a thousand dollars so he was incentivized to do it and they brought in someone really good in me um who you know at the time i wasn't that great but now after a couple of years i really learned what was going on so um that was sure. good but no i i think the thing that really set me apart was a i did have someone who was uh, my cheerleader, but also I had cut a reel and I knew After Effects. And at this point, not a lot of people knew After Effects. And so I came in saying, hey, you know, um, I've got this extra set of skills that you don't, you guys don't have on your team. And I really know how to work with cameras. And, the, and at the time, they, they kind of knew their workflow, but they didn't really, um, they didn't have someone who had shot as much as me. Uh, so that I think was very impressive. Of course, nowadays, it's less impressive because everyone's got premiere on their computer everyone knows how to deal work with cameras there's if you want to learn how to uh, you know shoot professionally you can spend a year doing tutorials mm -hmm. buy a camera spend a year doing tutorials on youtube shoot stuff and probably be way better you probably learn something in a year the tools in a year that are even two months that i it took me three yeah. years to learn by trial and error and screwing up and going like why is this shot blue because i didn't know what a white balance was or <laughs> why is this well how come some of my shots have more of a blurry background and some don't because i didn't know that aperture affected depth of field and i had no idea that the bigger the sensor the more depth of field that you guys didn't know any of these mm. things i picked the first camera based off my friend saying it was like, Hey, there's this dude that has a camera for sale. He's willing to give us a couple hundred bucks off of it. I was like, cool, I'll buy it. But I would not looking back. I would not have picked that camera. I would have picked a Sony camera because they're way easier to use. Okay. Yeah. It was crazy. Cause you're talking, this is around 2005. And so the video team at the time consisted of me uh, and three other people. And then Fran, who was the, the, uh, the director of video operations there. Um, and I don't know if you know Fran Mirabella or not. I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with him. If I've anyone's listened to our seen content. He has nice hair. He's got great hair. Beautiful, beautiful Italian man. And he's the one that really gave me a shot. And it turns out that he actually gave me a shot because the guy that he wanted was Canadian. And they couldn't get the visa details to work out. That explains so, the six-month waiting period, I guess. Yeah, they had, uh, they, they, I was their second option. <laughs> um, and this guy they really wanted from Canada, I guess, just they couldn't, they couldn't iron out the international visa stuff. Um, and yeah. so... I got the opportunity and I moved up and I, I really, I gotta be honest, I lucked out. 
Um, I think one of the things IGN is really good at doing is obviously picking uh, motivated people, but they pick people that they kind of know will gel together. Namely, they have they they tend to pick people who who have the same level of work ethic and who don't who have that sort of like diehard attitude and who they know will will help build the brand. And so when I got in there, I I met three people that were on my team that became my three best friends for. By print to this day, like I'm going to one of their engagement parties at the end of this month, and we got their bachelor party coming up, and that's 10, 12 years later. Um, so I just happened to luck out and find a team of people that were just the coolest people that I've ever met in my life. All my contemporaries, all my same age, all of us were single at the same time, and so we. I literally remember just driving to one of my buddy's houses who worked on the team as well, and like I didn't really know these guys that much. And the first thing he was like, "Hey man, you want to go to Taco Bell?" And I'm like, "We're gonna get along." <laughs> really well Speaking my language and from that point on we were pretty much best friends yeah um, and so i worked there for i worked at ign for 10 years um in the time there i got i went from being a video producer to being a senior video producer to being a manager of production to being head of production was my last title there uh before i left um and i saw the team grow and help the team grow i should say from the four people that was on the team to upwards of i think when i left i had at one point 12 people under me that were my direct reports, but the team was somewhere around 30 people. More if you count the contractors that would like do the editing for gameplay and stuff like that. So we saw, you know, this was in 2005 when um, you had to right click on videos and download them for a couple hours if you wanted to see a trailer for a new game, or you'd have to suffer through whatever terrible SD bitrate flash version of, uh, of the game trailer was there. And then, because I think third or fourth month I was there or second or third month I was there, the Xbox 360 came out and we had to figure out how to capture HD um, video. And this was pre YouTube. This is pre everything. So I saw literally, I had this, I didn't realize how tremendous that opportunity was until you look back on it and think, wow, I got to be at a company that was pretty top of the, of the food chain and experiment with video and fail fast and really learn all these things from these people and like learn together during a time where video was becoming the most important, aspect of the internet and of course at that time the written word was still you know the articles the written word were was still um king you know the guys that the editorial staff was still were still kind of king of the crop but we were i you could feel the storm coming and then once youtube started picking up it became very very obvious that we needed to figure out quickly how to marry the, uh editors yeah. with video um, and so you can, if you've followed IGN at all in that period from like 2007 to 2010, you see a big shift in, there's still a lot of editorial content on there, but there's a huge push to put editors on camera and to get and use their expertise in a video format, which is how I became friends with Greg, um, because Greg was a natural on camera. The first time I saw him, I, I met him, I, don't, I think he was first, no, Colin was first, because Colin was guides when he was young. So I, I'd worked with Colin a little bit before that but i didn't really and colin and i had like hung out we'd like we'd we'd had some drinks together but but i didn't start working with him really on in, in video until greg came into the fray and they started doing playstation conversations together and i would shoot those and those became the pre the the sort of uh predecessor to the news videos that now damon hosts and then greg and i really started working together a lot when we started doing up at noon with the youtube uh, money came through and I think I can't remember what day what year that was but YouTube decided to do a creators initiative where they gave companies a lot of money to go make a new channel and that's when we made start and uh, Greg and I I just I didn't really know Greg that much either like Greg always talks about this is around the time that I got married and he didn't even come I didn't even think to invite him to my wedding like this is how hmm. we weren't really that 
we didn't really know that much about each other, but I knew he was great on camera. And so when we got the opportunity to do a talk show, I was like, we got to grab Greg. He's so good. And I knew he was motivated. And I knew, per, to be perfectly honest, I knew that he would do 90% of the work <laughs> and make me look good. And so I could just call myself a producer of that show, yeah. make sure all the people showed up on time to shoot it. And he'd take care of all the guests and all the content. And Brian would help out. And we got Drucker on board. Uh, we were able to hire a writer, which was Mike Drucker. And we made up at noon. And that's really when Greg and I um, gelled as friends. And then Colin and Greg, like when Greg came back from VidCon, he was like, I really want to just start shooting videos on my YouTube channel. And I really want to start interviewing my uh, my roommate Colin and about just, and we had to, obviously we couldn't talk games. And at this point, obviously Colin and Greg were doing uh, uh, podcast beyond and, um, and all sorts of other stuff together. And I had known Colin for a while too. And so I was like, yeah, I'll come over to y'all's house and shoot some stupid stuff about Colin talking about ants. <laughs> um, and it was just... Uh, it was probably the first time in my life I remember thinking, hey, I'm actually doing something because it's fun, yeah. not because I have to, because I need a paycheck. And that was a valuable lesson learned for me because that was the first time I remember thinking, this is cool. This is fun. Like, we're just doing this. Greg was like, I'll buy you pizza. I was like, I'm low carb. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> and we would just shoot a bunch and then give it to Greg and Greg had to figure out how to edit them. And then we shot more of those and Greg had to, had to figure out them. And then eventually it started getting to a point where we wanted decided to do a podcast together i think we were driving in the car at one point and colin was like we should do a podcast together and i was like i would love to because i have I have zero experience podcasting and who better to get you know to learn from than these two guys <laughs> who have such good chemistry back and forth together because they've been podcasting for years i'm one of the biggest so, podcasts in the world yeah you know it was like what a great <laughs> opportunity for i kind of just started falling into i don't say i fall into opportunities but i definitely one of the things I consider myself good at is I put myself in the place so that when opportunity knocks, I can answer the door. And so obviously these guys are my friends and we, I'd know both of them for years. And I was like, dude, we'd love to do this. And if Tim, of course, I should mention Tim Geddes was when, when Greg said, hey, Nick, I want to do stuff on my YouTube channel. I was like, great. And then I go, I don't really know so much about YouTube, even though I've been doing start for the last couple of years. But this this kid, Tim does, and we're becoming friends. And so I asked Tim to come over and help me shoot and strategize with Greg a little bit about what those episodes need. I think literally this is like, what should we call these episodes? What should the thumbnail be? Like, this is where we were at back then. And Tim was like, you guys are idiots. Like, this is what you should do. Because Tim, being 10 years younger than me, grew up on YouTube and yeah. really had – he really had all of the – the sort of passion and understanding of that platform from a fan perspective where I was coming at it from a business perspective of, Hey, this is just another syndication platform for our content. Tim was like, no, this is where I like when you turn on cable at night, I go to YouTube and that's an incredibly valuable person, an incredibly valuable perspective to have. Um, and so, yeah, we all started doing that. And then it became, it, it went from, Hey, this is really fun to, man, it would be really cool if somehow this were our lives. You know, when you take money out of the equation and you think to yourself, what is my life? What do I want my life to look like? That's where the answer really is for you. And for a lot of people, I know like myself included, like I never really had the opportunities to do that until now. And we all sat down and at, at this point, things were with IGN, the relationship with IGN was getting, um, it was getting not, I guess, tenuous a little bit because they were like, what are you guys doing with this channel? We had launched a Patreon. We had started mm -hmm. making, I think, $12,000 a month as a side project. And they were like, and, and rightfully so, IGN was like, we need to figure out how this is going to work because we are in uncharted territory right now. Yeah. Obviously, they have other very talented creators that work there, and it behooves them to figure out 
kind of how how this needs to look going forward because the uh, landscape is shifting, so to speak, and there's a lot of tools out there for creators. I mean, look at what we're doing right now. You're making your own podcast out of your living room, um, you know, and it's easy. And so what's stopping everyone from doing that? And so we had to figure that out. And it just became sort of obvious that from my perspective, I had been working at IGN for closing in on 10 years. And I just needed a change. I didn't know what that needed to look like. I had, in my brain, I was like, it would be really cool. You know, I'm like 36 at this point. I'm like, I've been working my ass off. It would be really cool to like just try something for a year and just see if it works. And I knew that I could supplement my income if I needed to with freelance jobs because I have a bunch of friends at this point who had left IGN who started production companies. And they'd hire me to produce content for like corporate videos and stuff like that. So I figured I could, I could make that work. And so we all talked, and Greg was ready to kind of take a chance, and Colin and Tim were, you know, they were like, let's figure this out. They were gung-ho about it, too. And so we just kind of came to the conclusion that it was time to part ways with IGN and, and go at it on our own. Um, and so in, uh, I think we gave our, our notice to them a few months prior and said, we really want to make sure that our exit here makes sense for you guys, that we're not leaving you guys high and dry. And they totally understood and gave us a couple extra months of leeway. Um, and I was able to thankfully hire in some people to replace me and to, 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 uh, replace Tim that I think are really talented and still there today. Um, and then in January, uh, January 5th, we left and, uh, we launched our second channel, which was kind of funny games and a second Patreon. Uh, and thankfully, uh, since then I haven't had to take a freelance job. It's been just, it, I mean, there was just an outpouring of support from all the fans yeah. and people who were like, see, saw the opportunity that we were taking and were inspired by it. And everyone, you know, it was something that I, I honestly didn't, cause I'm kind of a, a, a pessimist when it comes to thinking of, of like how I would react. But thankfully there are thousands of people out there who are much better than me at supporting people. Um, and they came and they opened up their wallets and they actually, you know, they supported us. And we were able to, from that point on, start building a company. We hired Kevin about a couple months later because it became very obvious that we needed an extra person. And he kept showing up. Um, <laughs> he just kept saying, hey, we're, I'm going to – and Kevin's one of Tim's best friends for those of you who don't know us. And he just kept coming. And he worked at – I actually got him hired at IGN before we left. And so Fran got pissed at me for stealing him. But – we're cool now. Um, not really. He kind of knew. He saw the writing on the wall when that was happening. But uh, yeah, Kevin came, and then yeah, the rest is kind of history. From there, we, you know, we formed the company, and we worked out of the spare bedroom for a while, and we started building it. And it was just every freaking day since has been very surreal, of going like I can't believe there are people out there that allow us to do this and help support this, and that actually, the thing for me that's crazy is people actually like it. Like I do a morning show now every day, and people. Go, you know, I was out, I was out sick for a couple of weeks and people were tweeting at me like they missed me. And I'm like, that's so weird that I have become a part of people's daily routine because I don't see myself as a host. I don't see myself as talent. I will always be that guy that was drinking a venti iced coffee in the control room at IGN going, Greg's really good at this and just zoning <laughs> out for a couple hours while Greg did his show. So you mentioned these different hats that you've worn over the years. You've been a producer, you've been a director, you've written a lot of content, you know, you've done the animated series and more recently we'll go into, mm -hmm. you've been writing stand-up comedy material. So I'm interested in how you've transitioned from one to the other. Like what's been the biggest learning curve throughout this whole experience? Going from behind the camera to on camera has been, that's been the hardest thing for me, I think. So was that at the point of Game Over Griggy show or was yeah. it actually when you went to do kind of funny full-time that you felt that challenge? Um, I think that 
Well, I mean, a huge challenge was obviously like running a business because I'd never really – I tried that prior and failed miserably. Um, so actually setting up the business and all the administrative aspects of that, which I largely take care of, was a, was a hulking challenge. More so than that, I think the hardest thing for me was rectifying in my brain that this was – that I wanted to be on camera, that I actually wanted to be talent. Um, mm. Because, again, going back to the sort of my story of, of film school, nobody ever told me that I should or could. And I so did. I just didn't think that was an option for me. It never really resonated that that's something that I wanted to do, even though I loved making skits and being in skits and stuff. But I always thought, oh, I'll be the person who puts this together and directs it. Um, and then once I started being on camera, and we started doing a, a few, you know, sponsored gigs where me and Tim got to go out and ride bikes in San Francisco for New Amsterdam vodka. Um, I'll never forget we did that. We did this this thing for New Amsterdam Vodka, and it was one of the first times that Tim and I had gone out. So it wasn't Greg, it wasn't Colin, it was Tim and me being put forward as talent. And I was sitting there with this director who was pulling his hair out because it was this guerrilla shoot that we had done, and they didn't have permits for anything, and we didn't they didn't even have locations because it was like everything had fallen apart on them. And we're sitting there over lunch, and he's stressing, and his producers are stressing, but we have this moment of calm where we're ordering some Thai food in, and everyone's sitting for a second and relaxing. And he asked me, he was like, so, you know, you've directed some stuff and written some stuff. What do you like best? you like being in front of the camera better or behind the camera? And I just sort of laughed because I hadn't that I hadn't thought about that before, but I just mm-hmm. blurted out, oh, it's way better to be in front of the camera. And he was like, really? And I was like, I actually, I was kind of joking, but then I thought to myself, I was like, well, let's take today, for instance. I showed up. I had a makeup person put makeup on me. Uh, I had an audio tech put a mic on me, and then I shot the shit with the crew and drank some coffee. Meanwhile, the producer and the director are figuring out where we're supposed to be and how, and they're running around crazy, and they've been working on this project for two weeks and all that stuff. And then, and then you know, the host comes over, and we get to shoot the shit, and we're having fun. And I was like... I don't have to worry about editing this. I don't have to worry about it. All I have to worry about is whatever the social aspect is that we've committed to from a contractual standpoint. And I have to worry about being compelling on screen. And that to me is a new challenge and it's super fun. And uh, it's something I haven't done before. And yeah, it's just for me, that's that was kind of the moment where I thought maybe I'll – maybe being this this ideal or this idea that I have of myself, maybe that can shift. Maybe the idea isn't Nick – the filmmaker, quote unquote, the auteur, the, the pretentious indie film, like I've got that indie darling I'm working on still. Maybe <laughs> I can let that go because I gravitate more toward this. And I think that was another moment for me that was really hard. It was hard for me to, because I'd had this sort of idea of myself built up that I'd built up since film school that I was going to go out there and be a Kevin Smith. You have to sort of strike a balance between like the reality of the situation and the reality that you want to create. And the reality that I that of the situation was I wasn't writing every day. I wasn't going out on the weekends and shooting short films. Mm-hmm. I was shooting YouTube videos. I was doing podcasts. I was I was joking around and shooting the shit with my friends on camera and making people laugh that way. And I I'm good at it. Or at least I'm getting good at it. And so that's what led me to stand up because I thought to myself, I really like being on camera. I really like talking to people and I really like engaging with an audience. And I really want to try and do that when I can see the audience and see their reaction. And I've been inspired lately by what's happening with in comedy in general, which is that, you know, if you're not seeing what's happening on Netflix right now, well, stand up's having a renaissance. It's having another golden era, uh, much like it did in the 80s in that. It's just become this amazing thing, and it's super inspirational. And I follow people like Joe Rogan and, and his whole crew of people. Um, I've been to the comedy store a bunch. I follow all those people. I listen to their podcasts now. And I've just been like – I've just become this gigantic fanboy of stand-up 
over the last couple of years. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to miss another opportunity like I feel like I have before. Like not – I look back and I think to myself, I wish I had a sense of purpose when I was in high school so I could have gone to film school like right off the bat. I wish I could have gone to UCLA or USC and really understood that that's what I wanted to do and double down and committed to that. And so – in January of last year, I thought to myself, I'm going to commit to this because I know I want to do it. I know I want to be a stand-up. I know I want to be a personality. I know I want to start investing in myself like that. Mm-hmm. And so I utilized a tool that I've used before where I basically said to the audience, I'm going to do stand-up and I'm going to do a set of Kind of Funny Live. And that put a ticking clock down. All of a sudden, it was like, when are you going to go to your first mic? When are you going to write? When are you going to do these things? Because I don't like letting down the audience. Because I know people are so, you know, our audience is awesome and the community we built out there is awesome and they would totally support me. But I want to be the kind of person that says I'm going to do something and does it for everyone. And so I started doing open mics and I started getting, you know, a five minute set together and I debuted it at Kind of Funny Live and it was quasi okay. But it was kind of, I felt like it was sort of a, a cotillion for me, like a coming out party where I was like, I'm on stage and it's just me and this is something that I'm doing. Yeah. You're doing it. Yeah. That's cool, man. I think, you know, it's another notch on your belt as far as the many hats that you've worn over the years, the many things you're able to do. Do you find that having that versatility actually adds to what you bring to each role that you've had? Like knowing how it works behind the camera, does that help you on camera? And knowing these different ways that you can get a laugh out of people in kind of funny, does that translate to when you're writing a joke for stand-up? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, when it comes to the entertainment industry or if you're doing any sort of thing in entertainment, it really does behoove you to understand all aspects of it. Now, I mean, there's two schools of thought. There's one of saying like specialize. If you're going to be a comic, if you're going to be a stand-up, just focus 100% on stand-up. Do 10, you know, do three mics a night, seven days a week. Try to get, you know, pour, put your all in there and, and, and that's how you do it. And to a certain degree, that's 100% true. Um, I think that I look at that, but... And I think to myself, I'm probably doing myself a disservice by not dedicating myself too much to that. But where I I feel like I'm I've lost a little ground there, I feel like I more than make it up with the fact that, you know, in this day and age, you can't just go out there and be a stand up anymore. You have to utilize the internet. You have to utilize social media, and you have to utilize um, all these tools at your exposure to build people who actually will help help you along the way, namely people who will actually come see the shows and actually give a shit about you and want to follow your career and are inspired by you or at least entertained by you. And that's where kind of funny comes in and that's where social media comes in. And so I feel like what I have an understanding for how to utilize all of those things at my disposal to be successful. Um, whereas I see a lot of the younger comedians who are like, I don't know how to build a following because club owners look for that. You know, they look and they say, oh, this guy's got 10,000 followers, 20,000 followers. Well, he's doing something right. He's got some steam that he's building. And, you know, everything in life is about building momentum. And the way, the best way to do that is to use everything at your disposal to do, to, to make sure that happens. And so, you know, to back up to a film analogy, I think the best directors are the guys who, who who come from a writing background or who come from an editorial background, editing background, right? Um, they say the best way to to become a better shooter is to edit your own stuff. And I 100% agree because there, I can't tell you how many times over the years I have wanted to jump through and punch the guy in the fucking face that shot whatever video I'm editing, but it was me. Because you look and you go, I why didn't I get that shot? Or why didn't I hold on this shot longer? And that's how you learn. And that's the same in comedy is I've learned to film myself, not just record myself. 
audio-wise, but film myself because there's so much more to be learned by going back and watching your mannerisms and how much you move and how much you're – like I look at myself from the first time I started performing to now and I, I stay a lot more steady on on uh, on stage and I speak a lot slower on stage. Because before I looked like a hamster on Adderall, I was fucking running around every part of the stage and not making eye contact and not really engaging. And I was running through my jokes, speaking so quickly that people were like, wait, what did he just say? And then my spot was over and I'd get off the stage and my, let my heart rate go down. And lo and behold, <laughs> you know, when you go back and you utilize all the tools like having your friends film you and things like that and listening to yourself, you really can understand that there's a performance aspect to comedy that goes beyond the writing. That you have to also nail and so yeah i think that having all those having all that experience really does benefit in terms of your onstage persona tell me how you approach it differently because i know that for kind of funny you've got a persona there as well that's more or less you but amplified i guess and you're mm -hmm. reacting off the cuff to tell jokes and just goof around so when you're in front of a crowd of people that you don't know and it's not off the cuff it's something you've prepared how do you approach those things differently my approach to it right now is to write as much material as possible and be able to come in and out of that material at will. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to be the same person you see on camera on stage. I'm trying to be have a natural feel to it. But I just finished reading uh, Rodney Dangerfield's biography, which is a good read, by the way. As is, I, I, I was sick over the last couple of weeks, so I just sat in and read biographies of, of famous comics, including Steve Martin, which is great. But Roddy said he was like, yeah, he met Red Fox for the first time and he thought to himself, this is this guy's a natural at this. He's so collected and he's so, it's he's so natural on, on on stage. And he's like, it was only years later that I figured out that the guys that appear to be natural are the ones that put in the most work <laughs> because that's it. There's no such thing as a natural. Um, and so I'm yeah, I mean, I'm honing that still. I don't know who I'm supposed to be. But right now. I'm writing material that I think is funny, and I want to deliver that in a way that is is as authentic and natural as humanly possible. And I also want to be able to do what we do here, which is largely improvisational, and be able to jump into crowd work whenever I want. And I'm happy to say that I'm, I'm getting that, but right now it's one out of every 10 showcases that I do. Um, and I'd like it to be the inverse of that. I'd like it if it was 9 out of 10 with the one oddball showcase. But <laughs> it's just it's just a weird thing because comedy is a moving target. Comedy is not like an edited video where you get the opportunity to go back and reshoot things or, uh, you know, do VO or cut B-roll over something and you can make up your mistakes. Mm. Comedy is you walk on stage and you show up and maybe the audience didn't or vice versa. And there's so many different variables and maybe you're just not connecting with them for whatever reason and it just doesn't work. And then there are one or two very special nights where you feel like, wow, I'm really – okay, I – this is working. Uh, this something's happening here that I think I can I can I can continue to evolve. So yeah, I guess long story short is I'm still trying to figure that out. I've got a friend that's been doing stand up for a couple of years, and his name's Elmer. It's a great name for a stand up. It is. He, I think that's one of his bits, of course. But uh, he, he was telling me that like for him, it's it's about working out his thoughts and his insecurities. I guess in in some ways, the way that he approaches jokes and writing and presenting those to the audience. But what is it for you? Like, what is it that you feel? you get out of it that you need to do this thing for me it's my way of sort of digesting the world around me i see things that make me laugh i see things that that scare me i see things that piss me off and this is my way of dealing with that it's very cathartic it's probably incredibly counterproductive 
but it's 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 one of those things that the first time I dedicated myself to this, I started going to a club every Sunday called Punchline, which is in San Francisco. It's a pretty pretty famous historic club. Uh, it's it's Dave Chappelle's favorite place to to work out material. So people get bumped all the time for him, and no one cares because it's awesome. Yeah. That Dave Chappelle's there. <laughs> uh, but every every uh, week on Sundays, I go to this place uh, because there's a showcase of up and coming comedians, and you go and you you know the kind of the the sort of unspoken rule is you go for about nine months every Sunday, and then maybe you get a shot to go up, and if you do okay, uh, they'll put you back up a couple months later, and then if uh, if that works out, maybe they'll audition you uh, to become a paid regular within that circuit of clubs. Um, you get what's called passed, um, and I remember walking in the first time and thinking like. I, I kind of, because I'd been to comedy clubs before, but once I started doing it, I kind of, they took on a new meaning for me. Mm. And that meaning was, you know, you have a willing audience that's going to walk into this room, right? And anything that happened on the outside of that room is fair game. And it's cathartic for people, you know, because especially in the States right now, uh, with all the stuff that's happening politically, all the stuff that's happening socially, it, it's a crazy time to be alive. And I think people just need a space where you can walk in and take all of take the piss out of all of those things and just have a laugh about our president or talk about gun control in a way that's not going to get both sides riled up you know just make people laugh and make people sort of take the importance of all of those all those things that are happening and like you know comedy has a beautiful way of making you think about things without having all of the fire behind it you know you can think about these social issues that are happening. You can laugh about them and you can walk away and be like, huh, you know, they do make you look at them a little bit differently and a little less sort of like with a little less rage behind it. And I think that's the importance of why I think that's honestly why comedy is having a resurgence right now is that, you know, with the current political climate, people need to laugh at stuff. It's if, if you don't, yeah. you're just freaking stressed out all day, every day, and you don't have an outlet for that. You know, and that's why we're so lucky to still have guys like Chris Rock out there um, who can come on and Dave Chappelle who can come back and be like thought leaders and really kind of be like, hey, guys, you know, let's let's get in this space and let's let's take on some of these issues. Let's talk about these issues. And by the way, while we're talking about them, I'm going to make you laugh. And I think that's important. So is it the live nature of it as well that you enjoy compared to, you know, 99% of what you're doing in a studio or behind microphones and, and cameras with only a few people around? It's certainly challenging. There's a lot more instant gratification when you make an audience laugh versus when I say a joke that I see resonated to the comments two hours later or even or even 30 <laughs> seconds later if it's if you're watching uh, the morning show on Twitch. Yeah. It's not the same feeling and it's it forces you to be way tighter and put and put and just be really cognizant of everything that goes into live performance. Whereas like most, I mean, you've watched our probably at this point hours of our content. Most of the things we do here is fly by the seat of yes. our pants. And it's, it's very relaxing. That's why podcasting I think is so important because you can sit here and you can talk for two hours and really figure some stuff out and talk to each other. And if you screw up or if you say the wrong thing, you can Google it and fix it and do all that stuff. Whereas standup is a lot less forgiving. And I think as I get a bit older, and I think as I – not that I'm getting morbid like I've got a sense of my own mortality, but I'm closing in on 40. And I think to myself, wow, there's a lot of things I want to accomplish and I'm ready to finally for the first time in my life to like get out there and try and compete and try to be the best version of myself as, a, as an influencer or a talent as I possibly can be. And I think a lot of that stemmed from what we talked about earlier, which was me just really think like coming to the conclusion that this is what I wanted to do and telling the world that, hey, this is who I am and then seeing that – the support come from 
the community out there of people going like, dude, get after it. We're on your side. It's just I've got this like tremendous urgency now in my life. Like I want to, I want to be the best at this. I want to be great at it. I want to get out there and I want to be the kind of guy who does, you know, 10 years from now is doing stadium shows. Why not? Awesome. I agree. Why not? You mentioned before wanting to do the indie movie thing, do the Kevin Smith thing and realizing that that wasn't necessarily who you are. Do you feel like you've stumbled across that by this point in that the things that you're doing now are more of what you can see yourself doing longer term or is it still something that you're just trying to find what feels right i think there's a natural predilection for people to look at what other people have done and try to emulate that and that's what i did for a long time i think anyone that went to film school in the late 90s was like i want to be kevin smith right i want to make clerks (laughs) i want to be kevin smith and i wrote a lot and it just it's something that i do enjoy i do enjoy being behind the camera i still do enjoy doing things like more narrative structured like the uh the animated show um but you know i read a quote a long time ago from the guy that made the sopranos and he said that he was disappointed with his career because he'd only ever made The Sopranos and he really wanted to make films. And the person who we were interviewing yeah. was interviewing him was like, you're nuts, man. You made a groundbreaking – like you, you broke new ground. You literally pioneered this brand new show for HBO that helped build that network. And like we had not seen anything really like that. And you had taken all the experience before and gone into this new territory. But he didn't have the perspective on that that I think he could have had and probably has now. Um, because he saw himself as a bit of a failure because he never did what he intentionally set out to do with yeah. his film. And so I'm, I'm always kind of aware of that um, because if you are – if you want to be successful in certain areas, it behooves you to go into uncharted territory. It behooves you to take skills that you've learned before and push forward into something other people haven't seen. But you might run the risk of thinking like, hey, maybe I'm not doing the thing I'm quote-unquote supposed to be doing. But so I've learned over the last couple of years that if I'm doing something that excites me, if I'm doing something that scares me, and if I'm doing something that may not make sense from a financial standpoint but is really, really fun to do, that's probably right where I need to be. Because it might not be – it might not lead to me being you know, heralded as the indie director that everyone wants to be like Kevin Smith, but it will make me happy right now. And if I'm happy now and I get to be happy every day, then I can't imagine I'm going to look back on my deathbed when I'm 120 years old and think to myself, wow, I was a failure. I think that I think I'll count myself amongst the lucky and the successful in life. You won't be there saying I should have made talking cigarettes. I mean, look, the fact of the matter is, too, there might be a time when I gravitate back to that. I still write all the time. I write a lot of jokes. I'm still working on a couple screenplays. There's always ideas that I'm floating around. But... If you say to me right now, Nick, you can sit, you have an hour of your time, or you have six hours of your time for the rest of the night. You can sit and write a screenplay in your office, or you can go do a couple open mics and meet more comics and potentially get booked on some showcases and get paid uh, in Red Bulls and nothing else. Um, I'm out there. I want to be out there on open mics. I want to be, I want to be meeting people. It's a fun challenge for me to figure out what the next level is and how to get there. Um, and it's just something, if I'm being honest with myself, I just never really took the time to even give a shit about for filmmaking. You know, I've never even been to a film festival. I've never been to South by Southwest. I've never been to Sundance. I've never been to Toronto. Like, I've never done any of these things because I never got off my ass and went and did it. But that every Sunday night, I spend two hours doing, like, sitting at a comedy club, and I fucking love it. So that kind of tells me everything I needed to know about myself. Sure. So you're telling me that you're a poser, basically. A huge poser. Yeah. Huge, big, yeah. fat poser. Cool. Yeah. Glad we got that out of the way. So, Nick, tell me what's been the hardest part of your career journey? Because there's been so many different phases, so many different learning curves that we went into before. And 
I just want to know like, what's been the thing that you've struggled with the most over that time that you've mm-hmm. just really had to put in work to get through? Uh, letting go of control has been a huge issue for me. Um, and that's been something that I came to the conclusion of um, in the last few years that I have I have a little bit of a problem with. Uh, not that I'm a control freak. I have a difficult time being comfortable in uncomfortable situations. And so one of the big challenges of of running this business and doing this job was, has been to say like, hey, maybe I'm not the person's best suited for this thing. Uh, and maybe I should just rely on the people around me to uh, do the thing I know they're good at. And maybe it's not exactly how I would have done it, but it's going to get done and we're going to move on. And that's what's going to happen. And so basically prioritizing has been huge for me. Um, understanding that I really have to have a sense of what my abilities are and what I want to do. And it's saying it's okay if I don't want to do something and it's okay if someone else does it and it works out, maybe not the way I want it to, but it, it gets done and, and you move on. And that I think is really hard for a lot of small business owners, especially since, you know, if you have a job where you're getting paid a salary to go to, um, at the end of the day, if you screw something up, like, you know, you might get fired, but most of the time it's probably gonna be fine. Right? That's gonna happen. But if I screw something up yeah. here, it might mean that I don't get paid or worse, I can't pay my employees. And so everything became, once we left IGN, everything became really heightened. Like the lows are way lower and the highs are way higher because everything like so on you. you know you're out there on your own you don't have a security blanket anymore there's no mat down there if you jump you're gonna you gotta land on your own two feet or roll so that's been that's been the difficult thing for me is realizing that i'm wound up like a freaking toy monkey and then i need to kind of find ways to just yeah you know i got i gotta find ways to just let some stuff go you know there's they always say there's there's a great 80 20 rule where they say 20 percent of the things in your life are probably causing you the most stress so if you can cut those out you're going to be so much better off than you were before. Actually, I think the rule goes 20% of the things in your life are causing you 8% of the stress, but it doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, You get get the idea. And it's true because there's so many things in your life that you think, why am I stressing about this? Who fucking cares? Who gives a shit? You know? Like I'll stress about the color on T-shirts. And then at the end of the day, people are like, who cares? People still like the shirt. People still want the shirt. Who cares? And I'm like, you're right. Who fucking, like, why am I worried so much about this? But I think part of it comes from I want everyone to love everything we do. Which is impossible when you do so much, right? Yeah, it's impossible. But it's also not necessary because it's okay if some people don't like some of the stuff we do. Like, it's okay, right? And that, that's another thing that I've learned that's been really hard to let go of is that sometimes we're going to do stuff that's just not for everyone. And yeah. that's actually kind of the way it's supposed to be. Because if you come to a piece of our content and you watch us and go, I don't like this, why would you want to stick around? Why would I want you to stick around? Go go watch whatever you want to watch. Like yeah. if you're really into Phil DeFranco and you come to me and you're like, wow, this guy has no idea what he's talking about, but Phil DeFranco does, by all means, watch Phil's videos. That, that's his voice and that's his authenticity and that's great for him. And so that was hard for me, especially when I had started being sort of on more in front of cameras that I was like, I really need everyone to like me. Like I really need people's validation because you get that validation. And like when I, someone would say something bad about me, I'd be like, oh man, that's, that sucks. Now I'm a little bit more metered about it in that I realized that if someone leaves a comment with a, with a criticism, it's not necessarily saying, Nick, you're the worst in the world. It's just saying, hey, maybe this isn't for me, you know? And I think we're we're good at cultivating that kind of audience of saying like, you we're always going to be here. You guys can watch our stuff, but if we're not your cup of tea, no big deal. There are plenty of there's tons of there's billions of hours of of YouTube videos out there for you to watch. You can yeah. go, you can interact with all those things. 
So that, that kind of makes me think like, how have you found being a personality? Because you, you know, apart from maybe dreaming of being the next Kevin Smith or Tarantino, you probably didn't foresee yourself as such a community engaged person that people like myself are drawn to and want to interact with and criticize and tell them how they should be better as some people probably do. So how did you find that going from behind the camera IGN to this guy that is on stage, he's got however many thousands of Twitter followers and people just want to get into your mentions all day. It's, um, it's weird. It's still weird to me that anyone cares and it's awesome. And I consider myself probably the luckiest human being on the planet because the job that I get to do every day is not real work. It is, it is something that is way more special than anything I've done before. And it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. I don't know that I'll ever get to a point where I feel like I've earned any of the accolades or any of the support that I have. And honestly, to be honest, I don't know that I want to get to a point where I feel that way. I'm happy coming in here every day and being humbled by all the feedback that I get, both positive and negative. And yes, I do welcome any constructive criticism because I think that you have to have that to a certain degree, Um, especially if you want to grow as a creator. You have to have people around you that are going to say, hey, love you, but maybe tweak this or this or this. Um, It's one of the things that I really welcomed with the animated series, and I had a great time. It's hard. It sucks. Uh, when you see someone go, hey, this could have been better, or I really like would like to see this. Um, but I think it's a fundamentally very important tool in the creative process. And it's one of the reasons I love having Tim come out to my shows, because he's very candid. And he'll be like, hey, that joke about Catholicism is just losing the audience, man. People don't know that. <laughs> but it's good, because I don't maybe have that perspective. And together, you know, to put in context of what we're doing on YouTube, together, we can all grow now because of that. Because... When I look at myself and people go like, you know, this feedback on the morning show the other day, people are like, you got, you know, when you do the morning show, you have a housekeeping section that goes on for 25 minutes. And I'm like, yeah, good point. That's not exactly <laughs> the most entertaining thing is to hear me talk about the shirt that you probably own for 25 minutes. Um, so it's it's good. It's good to have that feedback. And I think it makes people out there know that you're listening. And I think that's incredibly important because who the hell wants to be talking out into a void? What's the point, you know? Um, so it's, yeah, it's awesome. That's good. It might be because you're a bit older than some of the other guys, but I feel like you're really good at kind of not engaging with trolls and getting caught up in kind of the criticisms on, <laughs> well, on social part media. Well, part of that is I'm just oblivious most of the time too. <laughs> um, okay. if, if you ask, if you ask any of the guys that work here, I'm always the last to know about everything. And if it weren't for Tim, I probably wouldn't have any idea of anything that's happening in the world at all. Um, and the guys, definitely the guys that are around me keep me young and they keep me informed, which is right. great. But at the same time, I am a firm believer in sort of the idea that you should uh, support positivity and um, and not worry so much about the negative aspects. And so when I when I do encounter people who I feel like are being negative for just just to be negative sake, I just move on. You know, there's no there's no point in like you guys know everyone knows that there's no point in engaging a troll. You're just giving them exactly what they want. And so I choose to incentivize good behavior with with people that follow me and people that watch our content by. Um, zeroing in on the people who either have constructive criticism um, because that is necessary. And I think that's an important thing. And I think that is a good thing, by the way. And when people have constructive criticism, I I love engaging with that. I love listening to them and letting them know that, hey, I hear you. Maybe I disagree with you. And maybe this is the reason why we did this. But thank you for presenting it in a way that, you know, doesn't call me a, a giant asshole because uh, that's, you know, because I mean, when you're giving people feedback, by the way, if anyone is out there listening, if young guys are out there listening and you want to give people feedback, the second you insult someone, you're you're asking them to shut down and just be on the defensive. And then you're not actually allowing, you're not providing 
a, uh, a set of circumstances through which progress can actually happen and through which two people can learn and you can actually solve a problem. What you're asking for is a fight and then it becomes who's going to win. And guess what? No one wins those. It just doesn't happen. Right. And so the best way to do that is when people do, in fact, engage you like that. If people come at you and say you're a big fat asshole and like, you know, I don't you, you should you should stop making content. Go just move on there. You know, don't engage. Uh, and then there are people like the animated show that, you know, people were like, hey, I really love this, but I want it to be a little bit longer because I feel like you could probably tell a better story if it, if you added a couple minutes. Well, guess what? I looked at that. I took it to heart. It cost us a little bit more money, but it ended up being more better for me in a creative way and better for the end product. Um, and so we took the, uh, the the episodes from three minutes to like six minutes by the end. Um, and it ended up being more challenging, but I think of, uh, overall a better show in general. I agree. Now. This is the part of putting in work where I ask for advice, Nick. Yes. Do you like giving advice? Love giving advice. Great. So I'm going to leave it up to you as to whether you give advice individual to each different area that you've worked in or if you have sure. something that maybe applies to everything in general. My general advice for everyone is that the thing that I've noticed most uh, when, when you want to be successful in really any arena is that it's, it's just a combination of time and motivation. So if you find something you're highly motivated by, if you want to make films, if you want to do stand-up, if you want to do YouTube videos, the people I've noticed that have been most successful are the ones that followed that motivation, followed that passion. And, you know, I know that at this point, the term follow your passion has become very cliche, mm-hmm. uh, if it ever wasn't cliche, which I'm sure it wasn't. But following your passion and then allowing yourself to put and dedicate as much time to it as possible, that's what I've seen people have a great degree of success. All too often we think, hey, I'm going to go make that YouTube video and then I'm going to get discovered just like uh, you know Dan Trachtenberg did or Fide Alvarez did and then I'll be directing the next Evil Dead and boom, I'm done. I don't have to put the work in. Uh, well, guess what? That's really not the way it works. Um, that is, those people are the exception to the rule, which is that you know for stand-up comedy, they say it takes 10 years. Uh, for filmmaking, I'm sure it's just as much. It really just is... You have to go out there. You have to do the thing you want to do. You have to be honest with yourself and, first of all, admit that you want to do the thing and then give yourself permission to do the thing and then dedicate every aspect of you know your work ethic and your life toward achieving that goal. I don't mean like spend every waking second writing jokes, but definitely let that passion guide you because it will guide you on a conscious level and it will guide you on a subconscious level. And if you give it enough time, you will you will see it bear fruit for sure. Um, that's something that I've learned later in life. Um, and I wish that I had had that revelation when I was in my twenties, because I would have immediately gone to the nearest club and said, where's the open mic? What's happening? Uh, but I didn't get that until later and that's okay. Cause I'm not, I know I'm not quite walking with a walker just yet. Um, but I think, yeah, that's, that's my biggest piece of advice is that find something you love and put the work in and you will, you will come to a point a year in or two years in where you go, God, man, I am just. I know where this might take me, but I'm enjoying every, like, I'm enjoying it. I'm just enjoying, like, I enjoy going to do open mics. I enjoy meeting people. And so at the end of the day, you know, what, I don't know what the next level is. I'll hit that. I'll go to the next level after that. But I can look back on a process of two years and go, damn, man, like, I made some serious progress on this over the last couple of years by just dedicating as much time and, and just enjoying the shit out of it. It's good advice, Nick. Thank you. I think that you've hit the nail on the head there. Like, if you uh, if you can see something that, you know, stirs those feelings in you. It, you've only got to find a way to make it work for you. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, there's another piece of uh, advice that I read. I think I forget who said it. I'm sure it's a famous quote. It's probably like 
Uh, it's definitely a fan. It might be Churchill or Edison or. Just say that you made it up. Oh, I made it up myself. But they said that uh, you know greatness is found during the time that others waste, and that was a huge. That's a huge motivational quote for me as well. Uh, in that you have to be very careful with how you spend your time. You really do, because I know a lot of people who uh, use the word well. They use the word tomorrow, and tomorrow is a is the worst word in the in the English language or in any language, because tomorrow <laughs> is what allows you to put things off. To another day and soon enough you'll realize you've wasted a year not doing the thing you want to do which tells me a couple things by the way it probably tells me you don't want to do that thing anyway um you're just kind of hopelessly dreaming but you do have to find a way to build momentum in your life and that starts with little steps and that's another technique that i use is like break something down to the smallest possible thing you could do right now to achieve it and do it today and make a plan to do a little bit more tomorrow and a little bit more tomorrow uh case in point when i wanted to start doing open mics first thing just googled it that was it for that day. Next day I came back, looked through them again. After a week, saw one that maybe I could make it to. After another week, put it on my calendar. Went back the next week, actually went to it. Got a cup of coffee, watched some comics, was super intimidated, left. I mean, these are like, it took me two <laughs> months to get up the, the nerve to go up for the first time. But in doing that, I made sure that I developed habits that would allow me to keep this in my mind. So instead of going home and watching yet another episode of Friends, I spent one night just hanging out at a coffee shop, listening to some, some comedy and like, and that it's little things like that, that can really make a huge difference. Like it's not the grand sweeping giant, huge gestures. It's the every day. What are you going to do right now? Little thing. What little thing can you do right now to put yourself on that path? That's going to start to build that motivation so that a year from now, you're not just a little tiny snowball rolling down the hill. You're a fucking avalanche. And that's really where you want to be. But it starts with this tiny little pebble that starts rolling down the hill. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I think that can apply to like anything really like self-improvement. You've quit smoking and you've had great success with diets and stuff in the past. So you can probably relate it to that too. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's it's all the same, right? The, the big tool for losing weight, by the way, is that the, the big thing that flipped the switch in my brain was when I sort of came to the conclusion that it doesn't all have to happen by tomorrow. And I think that happens across the board. It's like, you know, you've written a book. I'm sure at first you're like, Oh my god, I'm 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 like sweating under the pressure of having to get this thing done. But then I'm sure at some point you said, "Well, you know, maybe I'll back up and think. I'll just write a little bit today, maybe an hour today, maybe an hour tomorrow and see where I get." Mm-hmm. And then after, you know, I don't know how long it took you to write it, but after a certain period of time, you look back and you go, "Holy shit, I've got a manuscript. Maybe it's not great." Next step is you go and start paring it down and editing and doing all those things. Um, with losing weight, it's the same way, right? I used to be 265 pounds. So for context, I'm about 195 right now. Um and so, but lowest I got down to was 175 when I was doing like hardcore paleo and I was, God, I was so skinny back then. It was beautiful. But, <laughs> you know, I, I said to myself, I'm just going to start doing this thing for myself now and see where it gets me. And before I would, I would like do a diet for two weeks and, and just be like, God, I'm failing and not losing enough weight. And then I would obviously like, you know, rubber band back and just start snorting pizzas. But really when I got, when I started developing those good habits of saying like, you know, I'm just going to like, what really happened, what helped me was the structure of a low carb diet. And thinking, oh, okay, I can do this every day and see where it takes me. And it was actually easier than I thought it was going to be. And I started dropping weight. And you notice you lose weight immediately in the first couple of weeks. You're like, holy shit, I've lost like 10 pounds. And I went from 265 to like, I think I went down to 220 in roughly like four or five months. And I was like, wow, like this little, just doing these little things every day. The, the one tweak every day that I did was just cut out carbs in my meals. 
And just that one very easy step. And really all it required was me when they said, what kind of hamburger do you want? I'd say, I want a cheeseburger with bacon, no bun. All you have to say is no bun. Two words. And yeah. then you lose weight. That's weird. You know, and it's, it's very weird to like, you make those little tweaks and then that starts to build on itself. You go, okay, well now I want to start figuring out how I can get into the gym and build some, put some muscle on my frame. Um, and you do the same thing where you're like, you know, you break it down to the smallest elements and, and go from there. Cool. I think we've covered a lot of good stuff there, Nick. <laughs> yeah, a lot of good ground there. <laughs> yeah. So the last question I have for you is one that I ask everybody, and it's if you could do anything and know you wouldn't fail, what would you do? Oh, um, whew, that's a hard one. That's why it's the last question. Yeah, that's a good question. My first instinct is to say I wouldn't do anything that I can't fail at because anything you can't <laughs> fail at is probably not worth doing. Um, failure, everyone always tells you is like, is an absolute, uh, necessity and probably the most important aspect of any creative process because that's how, that's where you learn. Yeah. I guess it's like a hypothetical guaranteed success. Got it. If I could do anything with guaranteed success, I'm going to do a cop out answer on this and I'd say, I'd just be taller. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Now I. You don't want a Netflix special? All right, I'll cross it off. The I'll list. take yeah, I'll take uh, I'll take a Netflix special. How about that? No, actually, honestly, yeah, I'll I'll say Netflix special right now. I'll do a comedy hour if I could do anything and, and fail. I do I do an hour of stand up comedy and not fail rather. I do an hour of stand up comedy. Do you think tall people are funnier? And, um, I think they're not. No, I think that <laughs> I think small people are funnier. I think that uh, comedy is not necessarily exclusive to any any height level but i think that comedy is a great way to get across your insecurities and so if you're insecurity about being short it does make for some fun comedy very good i think tall people are just better in general yeah. for context i'm five eight by the way everyone if you're listening out there and like fuck this guy no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you i'm one of the average to short people cool so the last thing i'll tell you nick is that yes um i mentioned before the book which i had you sign at kind of funny life three i did name the villain of the book after you as i sprinkled in many kind of funny references in that book beautiful because you guys and what you did by leaving ign was a huge inspiration to me you know that whole message of that you can just do the things that inspire you the things that you have in your heart that drive you like you said when you gave your advice so that was kind of my little uh shout out to the community as well as you know a lot of those people in the community were part of my crowdfunding process to get published. So I just, yeah, I just want to thank you guys for all the work you do and all the laughs over the years. So keep it up and, and thanks for coming on the show. It's it's awesome to have you here. My pleasure. And I would love to come back whenever you want me. I'm here for you. Oh, really? Well, we've just done an, an hour and or, or so. Tell me what we'd do for the next hour, hypothetically. The next hour, hypothetically for the next hour. We'll start talking about my thoughts on Star Wars, <laughs> The Last Jedi. Oh, let me tell Uh-oh. you. No, we're not going to dive into that. That is the only area where people, where I, where I start trolling people. Okay. And that's where it goes. But no, in all seriousness, thank you so much for having me on. I love, I love talking about this stuff. I like, I love the opportunity to get to talk to someone who was, you know, who's doing cool stuff and and figure out what your techniques are to toward motivating yourself because I think that's you know it's something that I care deeply about um, and it's something obviously I struggle with. And so that's part of the reason why I love, I love talking about myself and I love talking about what I'm doing and how I'm feeling at it or how I'm succeeding at it is because, you know, I have a lot of insecurity built up to it and it's, it's cathartic. It's cathartic to know that we're all in this together. It's cathartic to know that people, um, fail, fail, fail until they succeed. Um, and sometimes you don't get to see that because for the most part, we're, we're sort of just showing the successes, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't see how many times, uh, Chris Pratt had to audition and fail before he got what is the community? It was community Parks and right? Rec. Parks and Rec. God damn it. 
I always get those two confused. But you know what I mean? Like, we don't know yeah. what his life was like, but we know him as Star-Lord now. Yeah, that's right. And so I think right now with the internet, with social media, with YouTube, with everything we're doing, this is the first time in human history we're actually able to show our failures and get and really glean a lot of information from that. And I think it's probably, to be perfectly honest, way more important to show that than it is – well, probably way more important to show the failures and the success than it is to just show the success. Because, you know, all that tells – all that told me was – Wow, there's a lot of people out there that are doing stuff that I could never do. But now that I see people, I see people struggle, I see the challenge of it all, it really does make it a lot more accessible. It makes it a lot more attainable of going, oh, wait, let me, wait a minute. Uh, you know, Joe Rogan was an open micer at some point too. And I can listen to him countless hours of his podcast talk about how he fucking ate shit for three years straight before he actually started figuring it out. Well, then I don't feel so bad about myself, right? Because this is a guy I look up to who went through this process. So I think it's incredibly important that we we talk like this and and never stop. Let's never stop doing this podcast. Okay. I'm in this for 24 hours. Let's go. You just woke up, you're fine. Yeah, I think it's it's good to vocalize, you know, these ideas of what you have experienced yourself because you, you just go through life and you don't actually speak it out loud and you realize, oh, wait, that's how I feel about this thing. Or that's the way that I've managed to get to this point that I'm at. And it kind of shines a light on, on what's always been there. Oh, definitely. And I think a lot of people don't do that because you don't want to share your insecurities with people, right? It's very, it makes you, puts you in a very vulnerable state when you say to people that you are trying to do something and failing at it. But I think there's even, for me, I had to make a conscious choice that that was the person that I was going to be to people. I don't think people look at me and go, wow, that guy's the most incredibly, like, uh, you know, successful in all across the board that I've ever seen. And wow, I want to be like him. I think the the person that I want to be to um, the people that follow me or the people that listen to our content is I want to be the guy that's just help trying to figure it out like the rest of everyone. And you can see me screw up. You can see, you know, me do a, a Jackman off competition for eight months and really not make any gains. Uh, you can see me, you can come see me at an open mic and watch me eat shit. Um, and I think there's value in that. And then I think there's value in maybe I don't eat shit at that open mic. Maybe I do make you laugh, but I feel like that's, that's who we are to each other now. And I think that's who we are to the community is that, you know, we're here for you and you're here for us and it's a great symbiotic relationship. That's cool. I, I was at Kind of Funny Life 3 for that your first uh, foray into stand-up and uh, hopefully the next time one of them gets online, I can watch that and see the growth because I'm sure there's been a lot since then. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope I'm much better. I've been told that I'm better well, that's good. Uh, by Tim Geddes and that really, that means a lot to me because he's my harshest critic. That's good. All right. Thanks a lot, Nick. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. That was Nick Scarpino. And of course, you can catch him on Twitter at Nick underscore Scarpino. Check out his live comedy shows all around the San Francisco area. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you leave a review in iTunes. And if you really enjoyed it, you can pick up some sweet putting in work merchandise. All of that good stuff is over at 8bit.net slash P-I-W. That's A-T-E-B-I-T. And while you're there, there's so many great podcasts in the 8-Bit Collective. So don't forget to check those out too. I'm on Twitter at Jonah himself. And until next week, keep putting in work.